Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board for You podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week, you've selected for us retinal macroaneurysms. We select as a group. As yeah. a, it's a group collaborative sure. effort. Where we both, and this one, we both equally agreed and contributed to the idea of doing macroaneurysms. I did shake my head in assent, yes. I gave okay, you cool. consent. <laughs> Thank you for, for doing that. And that's distinct from like any little MA that I'll see in a diabetic retinopathy exam. Is that correct, Ben? Yeah, those are microaneurysms. You know, they look, they look uh, yes. just like pinpoint dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The right. MA. So, yeah, we, so we're not going to say MA at all. Yeah, macro is important. We're not saying MA. I normally here. hate abbreviations, and like here, we I especially hate abbreviations. <laughs> but I did want to so, make that clarification because everybody was probably about to get confused. Right. Thank you for no. Thank you for doing that, and I think that's why the abbreviation sucks. So yeah, MA <laughs> is a separate thing that usually means microaneurysms, which is a feature of you know small vessel ischemic vasculopathies like diabetic retinopathy. And not the topic for today. The topic for today is a macroaneurysm. Angie, can you define that for us? Like what? Yeah, what is it? so what's the difference, micro versus macro? Of the different things, the small vessel ischemia is not what we're talking about, so that means this is something that happens to bigger, bigger arteries. This is something that happens to bigger retinal arteries. The here, you've mentioned that it's usually an artery within three bifurcations, I guess, uh, as the retinal arteries bifurcate out of the optic nerve. It'll do that once, twice, three times, more times. It'll usually be in a big enough artery that it happens before the third bifurcation. And actually, the BCSC usually says second-order arteries usually. So mm. before Ryan's the third or more. the second, yeah. at least they agree on. It's definitely one of the bigger, fatter, meatier arteries. And it's idiopathic. It's an aneurysm that just happens, you know, who knows why. Right. I mean, there's certainly things that are associated with it, associated with it that we'll go into a bit, but we're no, you know, we don't exactly know like what specifically causes it. Mm. Um, and a reason that they're important to understand and know about is that they can bleed into any layer of the retina or vitreous or one of the, you know, few things that can do that. And they can also leave, um, they can also leak fluid. So not only can these things be, you know, visually significant, but they can also masquerade as certain other conditions that might also bleed into the retina vitreous or may also leak fluid. So it's important to kind of understand what's going on here because the treatment can change significantly. And let's come back to what was associated with it. Andrew, what, what like diseases are mainly associated with macroaneurysms? Yeah, it's your usual vasculopathic risk factors, but they are made a big deal of, of here. Hypertension and diabetes. The numbers for that, BCSE gives a couple. They say that a two-thirds of all of these macroaneurysm cases are found in those who also have hypertension. So hypertension and macroaneurysms have a two-thirds correlation, supposedly. And then it also, BCSE says a little more obliquely that most of these folks will fail a glucose tolerance test, which we know is a diabetic test that is hardly ever done these days, but I think that's its way of saying it's pretty much very diabetic associated also. Yeah, great. But as you as you just basically said, it's not required to have hypertension or diabetes. So you should keep it on the differential even if your patient doesn't have either. But, you know, generally they'll be vasculopaths. 
Um, okay. So what do they actually look like? So sometimes you can see the actual macroaneurysm, but oftentimes, you know, they, they're not like these huge things that you'll like notice at first, you know, they're not like a hemangioblastoma, which may be more apparent, like, a um, like, you know, some, some with VHL that might look kind of like a, like a big old cluster of vessels, you know, this may, may not be apparent. Uh, and oftentimes the first time you'll notice it is when the, either when the macroaneurysm has hemorrhaged, so it'll be hemorrhage overlying it, or it will have a ring of fluid with the edge having hard exudate, which we see in a lot of problems that leak, especially within the macula. You know, a microaneurysm can also have the same thing where it leaks and on the edges, there are hard exudates because that's where the fluid is being absorbed the most quickly. So it leaves the hard exudates that's in the plasma. That is what makes up that, that edema. So um, like a, a classic appearance of a macroaneurysm is a white dot within a macular hemorrhage. That could be intraretinal or, or subretinal hemorrhage. But one classically gets a white dot um, within there. And the reason for that is actually has to do with Poisson's equation or Poisson's formula, whichever, whichever it is. But um, honestly, I don't remember what the equation is. But I do remember that flow is proportional to R to the fourth in terms of flow through like a tube. So if you have, um, you know, if you have a, a retinal artery that suddenly has an aneurysm, some dilation, then, you know, R to the fourth will increase dramatically, which will decrease flow substantially. So the flow in a macroaneurysm is substantially decreased. What that results in is, you know, relative stasis. And eventually you can get fibrin that develops within the macroaneurysm and that fibrin develops into like a white looking clot. So that's why you can see a white dot within a macular hemorrhage, and that's why you should, I'm um, sorry, macroaneurysm, and that's why you should be suspicious if you see that white dot. But sometimes you can have enough of hemorrhage, you don't see the white dot, or they don't have enough fibrin to really notice anything like that. So it's not, you know, the white dot can help you rule it in, but it, just the absence of it does not rule it out, if that makes sense. I have a weird off-the-wall question for you that you're going to hate me for. Okay. Do Are it. these the same as Roth spots? Uh, no, no, it's a good question. And I think they could be like, it's very plausible for them to be confused for each other. But raw spots, you know, they look the same. They're white dots within what looks like a hemorrhage. But those are immunologic phenomena that where um, the immune system is for some reason um, targeting. And I don't know the exact material that it is um, fibrin. It is fibrin. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the reason is immunologic as opposed to stasis um in um in a raw spot so you know they may they may look the same maybe even on histopathology it could look pretty similar but um the the mechanism is different so interesting correlation i wouldn't have thought of that <laughs> sorry no no I no yeah, yeah yeah no I, I like it i like it okay andrew what you know so we talked about what they can look like what would you find on imaging um suddenly i'm in fa conference again um, relating to fluorescein angiography, it'll sometimes show hyperfluorescence, but that's only if the hemorrhage itself is not an obscurate. That's only if the hemorrhage itself is not obscuring things completely, because if it is, you'll just get blocking. You won't see any hyperfluorescence. You see hypofluorescence. Indocyanine green angiography can penetrate better through that heme, like it usually does, and that may, might allow you to better visualize the macro aneurysm. 
The reason it can do that, you know, even though we think of ICG angiography as filling of the choroidal vessels, it still fills the retinal arteries also. And then, uh, you know, on OCT, they can have fluid surrounding them, and then you can have that heme kind of in any layer, uh, more fluid in, in any layer of a macroorganism as well. Treatment. So t- treatment of these things is important but can be challenging. It's important to remember that uh, macular heme, especially sub-retinal macular heme, can be very toxic to the photoreceptors. So, you know, it, if allowed to just resolve, resorb per natural course, it can be, you know, quite vision-threatening, especially if it's within the macula. So, Hang on a second, Ben. Sorry. You said sub-retinal heme. This isn't sub-retinal, is it? It can be sub-retinal. It can be, it can bleed into any layer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So even though the artery is coursing along the surface of the retina, it can still leak down even all the way through. Even all the way through, which is, I think, for, the RP, not past the RPE. Yeah. I don't know if it necessarily, I don't know if, I'm not aware uh, from, from reading that it can go under the RPE, but it can go under the retina. The mechanism of that, by the way, I tried to look up and read into. I don't, I didn't see a great, proposal for why it specifically could you know penetrate all the way into the retina i mean if a, someone knows and wants to tweet us like an explanation i think it'd be great um i think it's very interesting it can do that but i don't personally have like a good reason why um why it can't yeah, it might just be it penetrates your retina easily because it's so big yeah i'm not sure I, I don't i don't quite understand it either my mental map is just like i guess weirdly it migrates somehow gravity yeah but that doesn't even make sense either yeah and some of the imaging it's not, graf- it, it's not in the right it doesn't it doesn't look like it's like contiguous with like kind of the pre-retinal heme so it's uh to, to me a little bit of a mystery but perhaps you know someone is a retina specialist or a fellow uh that wants to, to chip in and, and give us an explanation that'd be great <laughs> um you can turf it to yourself in three weeks then uh well i yeah yeah i can and then i'll still need help from anyone else <laughs> um so but you know there's you know these things are not common macroaneurysms so there are there isn't like a large randomized control trial that looks at how best to treat these things you know there's there's various suggestions for that subretinal macular heme specifically, people have tried pneumatic displacement with or without TPA. So what that means is putting an air bubble in the eye and hoping the air bubble effectively squeegees the blood away from the important central part of the vision, like in the fovea or the macula. Hope with the idea being to preserve the photoreceptors from that toxic influence of the heme. Um, and then you can also introduce TPA to help try to dissolve that blood too. Well, the the BCSE yeah. makes a note that uh, a lot, some of the time, it doesn't say how often that these um, these will just kind of resolve on their own. But when they do, it can lead to, of course, vessel sclerosis and then downstream ischemia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, other things one can do is a uh, if, especially if they have pre-retinal heme, like heme in the the, the vitreous, is you have vitrectomy to to debulk um, all that heme. Um, it also would help you better visualize the macroaneurysm if you haven't identified it, like if you don't know what's causing it, um, what's causing the, the vitreous hemorrhage. And then the last thing I'll mention is an anti-VEGF injection. So, you know, the idea with anti-VEGF in general is it has two effects. One is to reduce neovascular vessels, which is not the problem here, but the other is to reduce the leakiness of vessels. So one could try anti-VEGF, especially if there's exudate. And then I think the BCC mentions one other treatment, right, Andrew? It does. It 
it advocates for, you know, kind of like folklore grid laser hitting it not on where the hemorrhage is, but just adjacent to it. Yeah. I mean, I think macroaneurysm treatment is controversial enough. Hopefully it won't be um, covered too aggressively in OCAP or board examination. But these are at least some of the options in case you're doing like an oral board on a macroaneurysm, that these are things that you can consider. There's also the possibility of yagging, using a yag laser on the hyaloid face to to uh, break apart the hyaloid face and release hemorrhage. Um, that sounds wild to me. So I will not like comment on it. <laughs> beyond that uh that's not something that i would feel comfortable doing but you know it's something that people have done as well i will mention the only other two times that the term macro aneurysm comes up in the retina bcse is in two other diagnoses one easy just valsalva retinopathy apparently you can blow out your own bigger arteries too if you sneeze hard but also in irvan syndrome idiopathic retinal vasculitis aneurysms and neuroretinitis um for whatever that's worth yeah thank you yeah no i think that this is like a prominent feature in Irvine. i mean it's a nervan so it would be a prominent feature <laughs> in that yeah. um okay and that's all we have for this week if you like what you heard you can follow us on twitter at eyes four years with number four we also have our website at eyes four ears.com with the number four and if you'd like to support the podcast it's really helpful if, if you go to iTunes or wherever you found our podcast and leave us a rating or and or review and otherwise we'll see you guys next time thanks bye thank you bye <laughs> <laughs>